This is Bo Buchanan with another edition of On the Level, and I'm here speaking with Jean-Claude Malter. Jean-Claude, tell me your full name, the name of your home Blue Lodge, and any offices or titles you have connected to that lodge. Uh, my name is Jean-Claude Malter. My Marvel Lodge is uh, now Tucson Lodge number four, but I was initiated originally in Scottsdale 43. I'm an American Mason, and I was in uh, I was initiated on February 11, 1988. Two years so after I got out 30, of school. <laughs> Thirty years right now. So you're Frenchman, but you did not discover masonry until you came to I'm the U.S. I'm an ex-Frenchman. Ex-Frenchman. Wow. Okay. Was born in France. I'm an American citizen for nearly 30 years as well. And when did you first discover or hear about this thing called Freemasonry? Do you remember? I had heard in France when I was a kid and then growing up as a young man, but I never had any particular interest because in, in Europe, in particular in France, it's fairly secret. When you were growing up, did you know if any of your relatives were, were Freemasons? No, no, nobody was a Mason in my family. But I knew other people whose fathers and were Masons, but it never particularly impressed me. So how old were you when you came to the States? It was half my age. So I was about 38. 39, 37, something like that. I don't even remember. Did you come for a job or what? Yes, you... I was a company transferee. I created for a French corporation a subsidiary in the United States. We manufactured water treatment equipment and we installed the company and I was sent to manage the company and run it, create it and run it. And I, we installed ourselves in the uh, backyard of Culligan, who was our main competitor. Mm -hmm. Hey, Culligan, man. Yeah, I remember That's that. That's right, yeah. So how long were you here before you got the bug for masonry? I was, um, I was in Phoenix when uh, I w became interested in Freemasonry, and I have lived in Phoenix. Uh, at that time since 1980 and uh, I became a Mason in 88. So you were here eight years. What happened kind of in, in brief in that eight-year period? Tell me a little bit about leading up to before you came a Mason. Tell me a little bit about your, your research process or your curiosity process during that time period. About Freemasonry? Yeah. It was just before I, be, I decided to become a Mason. I was a real estate agent in a company in Phoenix, and in that company there was a man who was uh, uh, a really nice guy that everybody was kind of attracted to because he was really easygoing and and always uh, had something nice to say about everybody. And, you know, we, he and I had a number of conversations together, but nothing regarding Freemasonry, up until a day when I met two guys that were Shriners in the same company. As same I, office, same real estate Same company. office, yeah. 
and uh, and he was working in that same office as well. And they mentioned in the conversation I was having with them too that he was a Mason. And you know, I just registered, didn't do anything, or but then I figured, well, maybe uh, maybe I should uh, talk to him about that. So I went to him and I, How long after this conversation with the Shriners? Was it immediately? Fairly close, yeah. Within a few days. A few days, okay. Uh, and then I had a conversation with him. I didn't ask him about Freemasonry right away, but um, we had conversation. And eventually, I went, I, I did ask him. Oh, you, I understand that you are a Mason. He, was, he had not mentioned anything to that. And he said, yes, I am. And I asked him why he was a Mason and what it was about. And we had a number of conversations, but still nothing that would pique my interest uh, into Masonry. But it was something that he, I just became aware of in, in a way. And then uh, over time, probably a couple months maybe, I formulated the idea that maybe he was like he was because he was a Mason. And then I went straight to ask him the question if that was something that was uh, influential in his being the way he was. And he sort of he didn't he was uh, uh, humble enough not to say yeah, uh, but that was the I had my answer. He was that way very likely because he was a mason. And I asked him, you know, so what do you need to do to do that? That's the magic question. And he said, <laughs> well, uh, you know, you just did it. <laughs> so how long was that time period before you had the discussion with the Shriners? And you went to your first meeting uh, with that guy. Oh, it was um, just a matter of several days, maybe. No, but you met the Shriners, and you said it was a couple of months. I thought you said before. I, uh, the time when I decided to become a Mason and ask him to start the process for me, that that was just a very short time. Okay, just a few days after you talked to the Shriners. Yeah. Okay. So then. Uh, he took you to your first meeting? No, no, he didn't talk me to any meeting. He said, uh, well, I'll uh, get you a petition. And we met uh, another guy that would become my signer and the petition. And when I had that done, uh, then the process was going. I don't know if I really uh, waited six months before I did the uh, uh, apply uh, and was elected to receive the degrees. But um, it was uh, probably in the, at the end of uh, 87, and uh, I was initiated in Scottsdale on uh, February 11, 1988. <laughs> you were raised, you got your third degree in 1988? I, now my third degree was in 1988. Okay. On uh, it's peculiar in my case because it was June the 23rd in the evening, 
which makes it St. John's Day in France, which is the schedule <laughs> on which I've Good been writing. Okay. <laughs> so you became a, a master mason on St. John's Day in France. In Fr- June 23rd. 23rd in, in America. Here, but the 24th in, yeah. in France. Yeah. Uh, and that was at Scottsdale Lodge 43. Yes. What, uh, tell me about what happened after that. Did you go through the chairs? Did you go well, through? Well, the thing is that uh, that was in June. And in September, I moved to Tucson. Oh. So all I had time to do in uh, Scottsdale was my uh, proficiency, which was very close, quickly after that. Uh, from June and July, I made my proficiency, and then I moved to Tucson, and I arrived in Tucson in September. Uh, fresh mission, I knew virtually nothing. I know I knew nothing at this time. And uh, we had, uh, I, I wanted to find a lodge where to go. And I did not know anybody in Tucson, any Mason or whatever. So I decided to go through the lodges in Tucson. And I went, visited almost all of them. And uh, I picked Tucson four because they, are, they were the ones that had the best library that I could tell. <laughs> Picked it based on the library, and they're yeah. even getting a better library now. And also, I have to to say that I was very well received in in Tucson Four. And there was something that was strange is that at that time, Scottsdale Forty Three had six hundred and forty one members, and I was the one. You were the one. <laughs> and Tucson Four had six hundred and forty one members. Oh really? Yeah. At that time. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. That's a coincidence. Yeah. Or did you go through the chairs in Tucson? So, um, well, fairly quickly after that, yes. Uh, I think I uh, I started in '89. Um, I even think that somebody convinced me to uh, go to the Scottish Rite, which I still regret to this day. <laughs> So are you still a member of the Scottish Rite? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the reason I uh, regretted the, the Scottish Rite is that for me, because the Scottish Rite, are you a Scottish Rite? Yes, yep. So, but it, remember, anybody listening to this interview might not be. So, well, but it, but the bulk of the Scottish Rite degrees is coming from, from France. France, right? Right. And I grew up in France, and you can tell that some of the things that are being done in the Scottish Rite degrees is directly a result of the situation that it was happening at the time it was created in The political France. situation in France. The yeah. history. Yeah. And I know the history of France, and I could relate to it, and I found that it was beautiful because it, it was an answer to all kinds of problems that the French had been dealing, dealing with that were translated in the Scottish Rite degrees. Oh. And because of that, I thought it was absolutely marvelous. But at the same time, I was super duper pissed off <laughs> because uh, the 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 degrees of the Scottish Rite 
propounded unto you over three days is absolutely ridiculous. You cannot possibly take in everything. By far everything. You you are overwhelmed. I felt very overwhelmed by all the stuff that was... I could have access to, but it was too much and in too little a time. And I, it cannot, it's not possible to assimilate this in, in three days, let alone even three years. Or in, in Europe, somebody that becomes a 32nd degree is, is somebody that has a long life or started real early in masonry. And uh, has been doing uh, one or two degree every couple of years. Wow. Yeah. Well, because they really pay attention to it the same way we should pay attention to the first three degrees. So flash forward to today, this year in June is going to be your 30th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. 30 years is amazing. Yeah. Wow. So tell me about... Well, I guess I'll go right to it. So tell me, one of, the, one of the ways I know you is from the military degree chain. Tell me a little bit about how that came about and how you got involved in it. In, um, at the time of the Gulf War, uh, we had um, uh, a bunch of guys that were in the military, and one of them had uh, come up, it was West Oaks, with ideas, why don't we do a degree in uniform? And, uh, you know, we march in, and we kind of made up the thing as it came. And I was, uh, I had no uniform. I had been in the French military, but I had no uniform at the time. But I had always had an interest in military music. Mm. And the military music in the military degree is one of the major thing that we do. Our floor evolutions are done to the tune of military music. And I had a large library of military music on CDs. And originally we had a big, I had a big machine that had uh, three sets of uh, six, CDs at a time. I had oh, wow. 18 CDs on total. And um, we used that thing so I would push on the button. I was the appointed musician. You're the DJ? <laughs> I was the music. Yeah, the DJ. But it, but it was painful because I would push on the buttons and put together the music and we would uh, go along uh, doing that. So, what year was this that you started putting this military together? It was 91. 91. 91. Okay, so to put that in perspective, you'd only been a Mason for seven years. Yeah. Right? Um, and how long did, how long, once you guys started talking about this, how long till you did your first military degree? Oh, we did it in 91. In 91, right away. Yeah. And it was, um, we did it at the Scottish Rite in Tucson, and Jerry Lankin, who was uh, at the time uh, in the Grand Line in, uh, in Arizona, he was—I don't know what, where, which state he was at, because he became grandmaster in 1995. But he also served part of 1994 because the grandmaster at the time White died during the year he was grandmaster. So Jerry Lankin was the deputy 
So he was deputy grandmaster uh, for the better part of one year and the following year. So and before he was grandmaster, he came to one of the degrees that we had in uh, in Tucson, and we did this in the red room at the Scottish Rite, and he found that superb and decided that uh, we had to come to Scottsdale 43 and do one in Scottsdale 43. So he arranged the uh, the uh, all the coordination to attract as many people, and he was really good at that. And uh, we had something like 150 people. So tell me, remembering that this, is, this interview is open to anyone, Tell me, give me a quick summary. What is the military degree for those who might not know and what do you well, guys do? Yeah, the military degree is a bunch of Masons that are either active military or wear military. They're veterans. And in the various armed forces of the United States, we only do second degree because it's more appropriate for what we do. Our floor evolutions are done to the tune of military music, we square corners, we enter in a procession and in a very military to the sound of marches, musical marches. You know, we have D'Souza, who was a Mason, we have some of his music, but much of the music is, some of the music is coming from uh, musics of Napoleon times that I had plenty of CDs about. And we have some stuff from cavalry and so forth. But it's a large sample of different kinds of military music. And we confer a second degree. And we are all wearing the uniform that we wore, or a similar one, because some of them would burst at the scenes. <laughs> uh, I'll grow that uniform after a few years. Yeah, so. <laughs> when you send them to the dry cleaners, they shrink. It's well known. And so uh, the uniform that we wore when we were active military, all the members of the Arizona military degree team that changed because, you know, some of the active guys were moved um, somewhere else or uh, Masons in a ways are imminently, uh, not the Masons, but Americans are moving often. So we have to renew and we hire new guys and uh, if they still can fit in a uniform, well, we train them and we had in the beginning, we were practicing almost every Sunday. And uh, since uh, the inception, we probably did uh, 250 wow. military We've degrees. We've done 250 military degrees. Uh, yeah. So. This year, you're going to celebrate your 30th year. So in 2021, it'll be the 30th anniversary yeah, of the military. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 250 guys. We celebrated the, uh, the 20th in Scottsdale 43. And every single year since Rankin got us to go over there, we have been going every single year in the spring or March or you April. We go to Scottsdale and do it. We go to degree. Scottsdale this year. It's delayed till May 17th because uh, we the dates would not fit you know we need together we had an epitome of some people were sick at the time so we couldn't get a team together now all the members of the team we have uh, 
Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Army, and I'm the only one, all of us are the American Armed Forces, I'm the only one that never served in the American Armed Forces because I served in the French Army. So, so in 30 years, so you're going to be 30 years old in masonry. Tell me, are there any guys that really stand out to you that have really impacted you or that have really stood out as, you know, oh, that guy really exemplifies what it means mason or really impacted you as a, as a mason? Well, the one that um, eventually uh, drove me to want to become a mason was the first one. And is he still here in Arizona? No, he's, uh, and he, I think he is deceased now. Oh, okay. And, uh, but there were several Masons that were really had an impact on my life. And one of those was an, uh, an American Mason who was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but uh, became a famous Mason in France. Oh, Iraq. He, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, Can you mention his name, or you don't want to? Yeah, I, um, if I when I remember his name, <laughs> Nat Grandstein. Nat Grandstein. Yeah, fabulous man. And uh, Nat Grandstein was born in Ohio in 1942 or so. Uh, joined the military after Pearl Harbor joined the military, he was in the army, he was a small guy, and he was uh, trained in special forces, and he was parachuted behind lines in Europe in several instances. And then he would go on foot and join the evacuation routes and get out through Spain or Portugal and go back to England and uh, then would be on another mission. Jump back in? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. He was a fabulous man. Wow. And how did you guys meet? Well, I met him because I am uh, of French origin. I soon became the uh, grand representative for the Grand Lodge Nationale Française in France. Okay. And at that time, there were problems with the Grand Lodge, the GLNF, it's easier to say, uh, with uh, the Grand Lodge of Minnesota that wanted to recognize another Grand Lodge in France because the French, who don't do anything like anybody else, have gazillions of Grand Lodges that claim to be Masonic. Oh. The last number that I say gazillions, it's not quite true. It was over a hundred. Claim to be the Grand Lodge of France. Claim to be Masonic. Claim to be Masonic. Claim to be part of a Grand Lodge that is Masonic. Okay, but we only Someone, recognize one. There is only one, and that's the GLNF, the one yeah. that I became the representative of. And that's how I recognized, uh, I went to France to their Grand Lodge uh, Assembly uh, uh, annually, and uh, I got to meet that Ned Grandstein over there. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. How many times have you been to Giona? Oh, 20 times. Oh, wow, a lot. You've gone over yeah. there a lot. Any, uh, any interesting stories from your visits there you can share? The differences are uh, very similar to American masonry, I assume? It's no, it's totally different. Totally different. <laughs> we can't say a whole lot, but... Um, yeah, we can say it's 
a lot closer to what Freemasonry is. And according to my concept, and in case you don't know my concept, I give you my uh, personal card. definition. You want to read that for us? Read it for us. No, this is on the back it. of Jean-Claude's business card. It says, you Freemasonry is a body of wise, powerful, beautiful, and transcend transcendental teachings conveyed through symbolism, promoting a fraternal, exemplary, and moral way of life, which voluntarily observed by initiated men contributes to their spiritual fulfillment and through them to the betterment of humanity. So and that's, would it, so would it be. <laughs> and that's a definition that I have been working on for almost 20 years. And that's probably version uh, 40. Which, which is a good transition into my next question. So coming up on your 30th anniversary, what is it that keeps you interested and keeps you in masonry you know what is it that keeps you coming back every week and keeps you well, participating for one thing i'm alive because i'm a mason that's a great story tell it the story you know the story yeah, yeah, okay it. yeah well I, I as i am the master the acting master in the military degree team and as such i probably personally i've done 200 since I am the master, once I had discovered a a, a uniform that would fit me, <laughs> and and kind of illegally bought it in France and brought it. Uh, yeah, funny. Yeah, because it's not allowed when you are not in the military to have a uniform. So anyway, and I have um, uh, been uh, in the east ever since I got this uniform, and I was uh, in uh, on January 21st, 2009, I was in the East conducting another military degree at Tucson Lodge Number 4 in Tucson. On the candidate that is now our marshal in the military degree team, and we did it on him because he had been in the Army. He's a sergeant. Or he was a sergeant in the military. And um, when he was being conducted during the circumambulation towards the south, I slumped off my chair. In the east? In the east. And uh, my chaplain sitting next to me pushed me, said, Jean-Claude, stop fooling around. And, and he knew that something wrong was. And I fell down. And they put me down. And they opened my uniform and they started CPR right away. <laughs> in a tile lodge. In the tile lodge. Well I was messed at that time. <laughs> messed up at that time. What what uh, lodge was this? What building? Tucson Four. It was in Tucson Four. The old building of Tucson Four. Okay. And the first guy that did CPR on me was uh a major and worshipful brother Andrickson, Richard Andrickson. And he broke my sternum <laughs> in two places. Oh my God. And one rib. And that's why I'm still alive. That's why I'm telling you I'm a Mason. I'm still alive because I am a Mason. Because not only did they do it right away, which permitted the oxygenation of my brain and uh, avoided that uh, I would die for good. Wow, because the, there was no pulse whatsoever. 
man, they were, I was lying. I don't know any of that. I was told that, okay? Uh, Manning tells me that I was lying on my back on the under. So Mike space. Manning, most worshipful Manning, yeah, was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. Well, yeah, he was. He was the uh, senior deacon that night, <laughs> and, and uh, he had moved from the south to the west. And when when the uh, senior warden that was in front of him uh, <laughs> was asking the questions, and he said, "What happens to Jean Claude?" And he turned around. And then the whole hell broke loose, and that's when they did start the CPR. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So Manning was checking my uh, eyes and making sure I was not swallowing my tongue and all that. <laughs> uh, so and they saved your life. They saved my life, and they, three of them relayed one after the other uh, to. Uh, uh, to do CPR on me, and wow. this number two, after five minutes, uh, Richard Hendrickson was exhausted. <laughs> and Richard Hendrickson, thanks to the fact that he was in the military in Vietnam, had learned CPR, and he was also for 20-some-odd years on a motorcycle uh, cop in the Tucson Police Department, had had a chance to do CPR on all kinds of people before. And he was telling me, he told me afterwards, so you can ask him someday. He said, I, you know, it was okay to do it on plenty of times before, but he said, I had never done it on somebody that I do. And he did it for five minutes. About, well, uh, who stepped in next? And then there was uh, Richard Grimes, a guy from the 82nd Airborne. And the third one was the... Uh, the uh, stepson of uh, of um, uh, Craig Rose, Craig Rose's ben, stepson. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, ben and Ben had taken a class on CPR maybe a few weeks or a few <laughs> months earlier. Wow! So that's why. Oh, then they had called. In the meantime, they had called nine one one, and they, these guys came over here and. That night, I was wearing a brand new uniform that I had found that I could adjust to my size. <laughs> and uh, it was the first time I was wearing it. And when the, when the, uh, the guys uh, from the EMTs came in, they cut it off. Uh, <laughs> so what, what year was this? That was in 2009. 2009. Today, this is nine years. Today? Today, this is nine years, two months, and this is the third day. Nine years, two months, and three days. So you count down the day. 3,348 days. You count every single day. Including leap years. <laughs> 3,348 days. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, any other? Any so, other? well, the, the fact after that. I was really, you know, clinically, when you have a cardiac arrest, it's not something, it's not the restrictions of the arteries or anything like that. It's electrical. The heart stops beating. We don't really understand why, but that's, there are 320,000 people every year in America that die from this. Wow. And there is maybe 5% of them that have that, that, Survive, yeah. And out of those five percent, there is probably uh, only five to ten percent that survive without 
any. I'm just as odd as I was before. I don't have any brain injury. My brain injury dead from way before. So other than saving your life, any other reason why you're still a Freemason? Like what from a, what else do you get out of it, I guess? What are, what are you getting out of Masonry that keeps you coming? I was really interested in the fact that it was a, a way to learn things that I could use to improve my life. Because I had... Uh, Arriving in the United States after living almost 40 years in France, and arriving in the United States, it's very difficult. It's a different culture, different language, background, religion, everything is totally different. And it was really tough. But I, I found a couple of millions of brothers and that was something that was attractive to me, in addition to the fact that I was reading the books, because that was of interest to me. Oh, okay. And I have, uh, I, I became master the first time in 1993. I was master of the Arizona, Southern Arizona Research Lodge Number Two, before I was master of a blue lodge. Oh, really? Oh. I was master of the research lodge. Oh. And when did you start this uh, this personal I, mission statement on the back of your business card? When probably um, maybe 20 years ago. I was in a mason maybe for 10 years at the time I started to do that. And that's something you and keep the working reason, on? Yeah. The year I became, uh, I was senior deacon, they asked me one day to write an article for the magazine, you know, the Trestle Board, Trestle Board of mm-hmm. Tucson 4. And, you know, my French language is my mother tongue, English is not. And I had no idea. I had never written anything peculiar in English. I spoke English fairly well already at the time. But... It's not my mother tongue, and in masonry, there is all kinds of stuff that even are not spoken by Americans, because that was Shakespeare originally, right. you know, it, and I was taught Shakespeare in high school, not American language. So I, I reflected, and one evening, there was a third degree at Tucson Four, and I attended the degree, and because I was attending that degree, I heard the word trestle board, which for me was a strange word. I did not know what it really meant. So when I came home that night, I have a very sophisticated and expensive dictionary, English, French, and French English, and I looked for trestle board, and there was no word like that. <laughs> that was funny. So eventually I was able to piece it. I looked at trestle and board, and I found uh, the word easel, which put me on the road to the word trestle board, and I figured it out. And from that day forward, I started to, I wrote an article on the trestle board, the designs on the trestle board was my first article that I wrote. Uh, And I started to write in the magazine of the lodge every month. And that was the seed of what led you to this? Yes. 
because I, uh, I, it helped me crystallize my idea to have to put them to paper. And it's something that I recommend to anybody to do because you can have all kinds of thoughts, but writing it is the crystallization of the thoughts that you have. It's the translation of the thoughts. So you perfect them. Yeah, and maybe, I don't know if it's relevant, but tons of people would ask me if when I dream or when I speak, do I think in French or do I think in English? And in the beginning of my living in the United States, I would say, well, when I speak English, I think in English. When I speak French, I think in French. But that's not true. You don't think in a language. The language is only the tool that you use to translate your thoughts. And you translate them into one language or another, whatever it is that you are speaking or writing at the moment. And do you speak a lot of French still? I have my son that lives here, and I read French, or, you know, okay. uh, listen to French movies or watch movies. Or... Watch Jerry Lewis a lot? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> never, I, never understood why the French, the French are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> why they love Jerry Lewis? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about your your journey in masonry that you'd want people to hear or think about? My my journey has been absolutely beautiful. I think that uh, we have a treasure that we don't really know is a treasure. Uh, it's of great beauty. It's our ritual. Our ritual is fabulous. It answers tons of questions in a very beautiful manner. And it's extremely powerful. The last three words that I added, the last revision of this formula was to add wise, powerful, and beautiful. Wisdom, strength, and beauty. And being of French origin, beauty is something that is really important to me from the cultural standpoint. French people uh, may uh, do uh, a water softener, which is the stuff that I was manufacturing when I came to the United States. Our water softeners were beautiful to look at. They had the stainless steel jacket, and they had we had the designer that had made the valve with a plastic hood. The colors were chosen and all of that. While the American water softeners that were sold by Culligan, it was the fiberglass tank with a brass valve on top, and that was very basic, did the same thing. But the French liked to look at theirs. And people would prefer, or at least the French would have preferred, to have a nice stainless steel jacketed, but it was the same. But I guess that's why the, the French are the leaders in the fashion industry, because they're always thinking, yeah, what's beautiful? The French are attracted by beautiful things, and they love beautiful things. And if you can make something beautiful, they, they would prefer to do it that way than making it uh, functional which would be the rational way of the Americans. 
and that's kind of what you've done with the military. Degree. Exactly that. <laughs> what a perfect way to close. Yeah. Jean-Claude, thank you very much for taking time You're to talk to me. You're very welcome. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome.